Part 12 of the Book of the National Parks. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Book of the National Parks by Robert Sterling Yard. Mount Rainier, Icy Octopus. Mount Rainier National Park, West Central Washington, area 324 square miles. 1. Mount Rainier, the loftiest volcano within the boundaries of the United States, one of our greatest mountains, and certainly our most imposing mountain, rises from western central Washington to an altitude of 14,408 feet above mean tide in Puget Sound. It is 42 miles in direct line from the center of Tacoma and 57 miles from Seattle, from both of which its glistening peak is often a prominent spectacle. With favoring atmospheric conditions, it can be seen 150 miles away. North and south of Rainier, the Cascade Mountains bear other snow-capped volcanic peaks. Baker rises 10,703 feet, Adams 12,307 feet, St. Helens 9,697 feet, Hood 11,225 feet, and Shasta 14,162 feet. But Rainier surpasses them all in height, bulk, and majesty. Once it stood 16,000 feet, as is indicated by the slopes leading up to its broken and flattened top. The supposition is that nearly 2,000 feet of its apex were carried away in one or more explosive eruptions long before history, but possibly not before man. There are Indian traditions of a cataclysm. There were slight eruptions in 1843, 1854, 1858, and 1870, and from the two craters at its summit issue many jets of steam which comfort the chilled climber. This immense sleeping cone is blanketed in ice. Twenty-eight well-defined glaciers flow down its sides, several of which are nearly six miles long. Imagining ourselves looking down from an airplane at a great height, we can think of seeing it as an enormous frozen octopus sprawling upon the grass, for its curving arms of ice, reaching out in all directions, penetrate one of the finest forests even of our northwest. The contrast between these cold glaciers and the luxuriantly wild-flowered and forest-edged meadows which border them, as snugly as so many rippling summer rivers, affords one of the most delightful features of Mount Rainier National Park. Paradise Inn, for example, stands in a meadow of wildflowers between Rainier's icy front on the one side and the snowy Tatouche Range on the other, with the Nisqually Glacier fifteen minutes' walk away. The casual tourist who has looked at the snowy range of the Rockies from the distant comfort of Estes Park, or the High Sierra from the dining porch of the Glacier Point Hotel, receives an invigorating shock of astonishment at beholding Mount Rainier even at a distance. Its isolation gives it enormous scenic advantage. Mount Whitney of the Sierra, our loftiest summit, which overtops it ninety-three feet, is merely the climax in a tempestuous ocean of snowy neighbors, which are only less lofty. Rainier towers nearly 8,000 feet above its surrounding mountains. It springs so powerfully into the air that one involuntarily looks for signs of life and action. But no smoke rises from its broken top. It is still and helpless, shackled in bonds of ice. Will it remain bound, or will it, with due warning, destroy in a day the elaborate system of glaciers which countless centuries have built, and leave a new and different and perhaps, after years of glacial recovery, even a more gloriously beautiful Mount Rainier than now? The extraordinary individuality of the American national parks, 
Their difference, each from every other, is nowhere more marked than here. Single peak glacial systems of the size of Rainier's, of course, are found wherever mountains of great size rise in close masses far above the line of perpetual snow. The Alaskan range and the Himalayas may possess many, but if there is anywhere another mountain of approximate height and magnitude, carrying an approximate glacier system, which rises 8,000 feet higher than its neighbors out of a parkland of lakes, forests, and wildflower gardens, which nature seems to have made especially for pleasuring, and the heart of which is reached in four hours from a large city situated upon a transatlantic railway line, I have not heard of it. Seen a hundred miles away, or from the streets of Seattle and Tacoma, or from the motor road approaching the park, or from the park itself, or from any of the many interglacial valleys, one never gets used to the spectacle of Rainier. The shock of surprise, the instant sense of impossibility, ever repeats itself. The mountain assumes a thousand aspects which change with the hours, with the position of the beholder, and with atmospheric conditions. Sometimes it is fairy-like, sometimes threatening, always majestic. One is not surprised at the Indian's fear. Often Rainier withdraws his presence altogether behind the horizon mists, even a few miles away, no hint betrays his existence. And very often, shrouded in snowstorm or cloud, he is lost to those at his foot. Mysterious and compelling is this ghostly mountain to us who see it for the first time, unable to look long away while it remains in view. It is the same, old Washingtonians tell me, with those who have kept watching it every day of visibility for many years. And so it was to Captain George Vancouver when, first of white men, he looked upon it from the bridge of the Discovery on May 8, 1792. The weather was serene and pleasant, he wrote under that date, and the country continued to exhibit, between us and the eastern snowy range, the same luxuriant appearance. At its eastern extremity, Mount Baker bore by compass north 22 east, the round snowy mountain, now forming its southern extremity, and which, after my friend Rear Admiral Rainier, I distinguished by the name of Mount Rainier, bore north, south, 42 east. Thus Mount Rainier was discovered, and named at the same time, presumably on the same day. Eighteen days later, having followed the inlet, meaning Puget Sound, to his point of nearest approach to the mountain, Vancouver wrote, We found the inlet to terminate here in an extensive circular compact bay, whose waters washed the base of Mount Rainier, though its elevated summit was yet at a very considerable distance from the shore, with which it was connected by several ridges of hills, rising towards it with gradual ascent and much regularity. The forest trees and several shades of verdure that covered the hills gradually decreased in point of beauty until they became invisible, when the perpetual clothing of snow commenced, which seemed to form a horizontal line from north to south along this range of rugged mountains, from whose summit Mount Rainier rose conspicuously and seemed as much elevated above them as they were above the level of the sea, the whole producing a most grand, picturesque effect. Vancouver made no attempt to reach the mountain. Dreamer of great dreams though he was, how like a madhouse nightmare would have seemed to him a true prophecy of mighty engines, whose like no human mind had then conceived, running upon roads of steel and asphalt, at speeds which no human mind had then imagined, whirling thousands upon thousands of pleasure-seekers from the shores of that very inlet to the glistening mountain's flowered sides. 
Just one century after the discovery, the Geological Society of America started the movement to make Mount Rainier a national park. Within a year, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, the National Geographic Society, the Appalachian Mountain Club, and the Sierra Club joined in the memorialization of Congress. Six years later, in 1899, the park was created. 2. The principal entrance to the park is up the Nisqually River at the south. Here entered the pioneer, James Longmire, many years ago, and the roads established by him and his fellows determined the direction of the first national park development. Longmire Springs, for many years the nearest resort to the Great Mountain, lies just within the southern boundary. Beyond it, the road follows the Nisqually and Paradise Valleys, under glorious groves of pine, cedar, and hemlock, along ravines of striking beauty, past waterfalls, and the snout of the Nisqually Glacier. Finally, to inimitable Paradise Park, its inn, its hotel camp, and its public camping grounds. Other centers of wilderness life have been since established, and the marvelous north side of the park will be opened by the construction of a northwesterly highway up the valley of the Carbon River. Already, a fine trail entirely around the mountain connects these various points of development. But the southern entrance and Paradise Park will remain for many years the principal center of exploration and pleasuring. Here begins the popular trail to the summit. Here begin the trails to many of the finest viewpoints, the best-known falls, the most accessible of the many exquisite interglacial gardens. Here the Nisqually Glacier is reached in a few minutes' walk at a point particularly adapted for ice-climbing, and the comfortable viewing of icefalls, crevasses, caves, and other glacier phenomena grandly exhibited in fullest beauty. It is a spot which can have in the nature of things few equals elsewhere in scenic variety and grandeur. On one side is the vast glistening mountain, on the other side the high serrated Tatouche range, spattered with perpetual snow. In middle distance, details of long winding glaciers seamed with crevasses, in the foreground gorgeous rolling meadows of wildflowers, dotted and bordered with equally luxuriant and richly varied forest groves. From close by elevations, a gorgeous tumbled wilderness of hills, canyons, rivers, lakes, and falls, backgrounded by the cascades and accented by distant snowy peaks. The whole pervaded by the ever-present mountain, always the same yet grandly different, from different points of view in the detail of its glaciered sides. The variety of pleasuring is similarly very large. One can ride horseback round the mountain in a leisurely week, or spend a month or more exploring the greater wilderness of the park. One can tramp the trails on long trips, camping by the way, or vary a vacation with numerous short tramps. Or one can loaf away the days in dreamy content, with now and then a walk, and now and then a ride. Or one can explore glaciers and climb minor mountains. The Tatouche Range alone will furnish the stiffest as well as the most delightful climbing, with wonderful rewards upon the jagged summits, while short climbs to points upon nearby snowfields will afford coasting without sleds, an exciting sport, especially appreciated when one is young. In July, before the valley snows melt away, there is tobogganing and skiing within a short walk of the inn. The leisurely tour afoot around the mountain with pack-train following the trail is an experience never to be forgotten. One passes the snouts of a score of glaciers, each producing its river, and sees the mountain from every angle, besides having a continuous panorama of the surrounding country, including Mount Adams, Mount St. Helens, Mount Baker, 
Tacoma, Seattle, Mount Olympus, the Pacific Ocean, and the Cascades from the Columbia to the International Line. Shorter excursions to other beautiful parklands offer a wide variety of pleasure. Indian Henry's Hunting Ground, Van Trump Park, Summerland, and others provide charm and beauty as well as fascinating changes in the aspect of the great mountain. Of course, the ascent of the mountain is the ultimate objective of the climber, but few, comparatively, will attempt it. It is a feat in endurance which not many are physically fit to undertake, while to the unfit there are no rewards. There is comparatively little rock climbing, but what there is will try wind and muscle. Most of the way is tramping up long, snow-covered and ice-covered slopes, with little rest from the start at midnight to the return, if all goes well, before the following sundown. Face and hands are painted to protect against sunburn, and colored glasses avert snow blindness. Success is so largely a matter of physical condition that many ambitious tourists are advised to practice a while on the Tatouche Range before attempting the trip. Do you see Pinnacle Peak up there? they ask you. If you can make that, you can make Rainier. Better try it first. And many who try Pinnacle Peak do not make it. As with every very lofty mountain, the view from the summit depends upon the conditions of the moment. Often Rainier's summit is lost in mists and clouds, and there is no view. Very often on the clearest day, clouds continually gather and dissipate. One is lucky in the particular time he is on top. Frequently there are partial views. Occasionally every condition favors, and then, indeed, the reward is great. S. F. Emmons, who made the second ascent, and after whom one of Rainier's greatest glaciers was named, stood on the summit upon one of those fortunate moments. The entire mountain, in all its inspiring detail, lay at his feet, a wonder spectacle of first magnitude. Looking to the more distant country, he wrote, the whole stretch of Puget Sound, seeming like a pretty little lake embowered in green, could be seen in the northwest, beyond which the Olympic Mountains extend out into the Pacific Ocean. The Cascade Mountains, lying dwarfed at our feet, could be traced northward into British Columbia and southward into Oregon, while above them, at comparatively regular intervals, rose the ghost-like forms of our companion volcanoes. To the eastward the eye ranged over hundreds of miles, over chain on chain of mountain ridges which gradually disappeared in the dim blue distance. Notwithstanding the rigors of the ascent, parties leave Paradise Inn for the summit every suitable day. Hundreds make the ascent each summer. To the experienced mountain climber it presents no special difficulties. To the inexperienced it is an extraordinary adventure. Certainly no one knows his Mount Rainier who has not measured its gigantic proportions in units of his own endurance. The first successful ascent was made by General Hazard Stevens and P. B. Van Trump, both residents of Washington, on August 17, 1870. Starting from James Longmire's, with Mr. Longmire himself as guide up the Nisqually Valley, they spent several days in finding the Indian Sluiskin, who would take them to the summit. With him, then, assuming Longmire's place, Stevens and Van Trump started on their great adventure. It proved more of an adventure than they anticipated, for not far below the picturesque falls which they named after Sluiskin, the Indians stopped and begged them to go no farther. From that compilation of scholarly worth by Professor Edmund S. Meany, President of the Mountaineers, entitled Mount Rainier, A Record of Exploration, I quote General Stevens' translation of Sluiskin's protest. "'Listen to me, my good friends,' said Sluiskin. "'I must talk with you. 
Your plan to climb Tacoma is all foolishness. No one can do it and live. A mighty chief dwells upon the summit in a lake of fire. He brooks no intruders. Many years ago my grandfather, the greatest and bravest chief of all the Yakima, climbed nearly to the summit. There he caught sight of the fiery lake, and the infernal demon coming to destroy him, and fled down the mountain, glad to escape with his life. Where he failed, no other Indian ever dared make the attempt. At first the way is easy, the task seems light. The broad snowfields over which I have often hunted the mountain goat offer an inviting path, but above them you will have to climb over steep rocks, overhanging deep gorges, where a misstep would hurl you far down, down to certain death. You must creep over steep snowbanks and cross deep crevasses, where a mountain goat would hardly keep his footing. You must climb along steep cliffs, where rocks are continually falling to crush you, or knock you off into the bottomless depths. And if you should escape these perils, and reach the great snowy dome, then a bitterly cold and furious tempest will sweep you off into space like a withered leaf. But if by some miracle you should survive all these perils, the mighty demon of Tacoma will surely kill you and throw you into the fiery lake. Don't you go. You make my heart sick when you talk of climbing Tacoma. You perish if you try to climb Tacoma. You will perish, and your people will blame me. Don't go. Don't go. If you go, I will wait here two days, and then go to Olympia, and tell your people that you perished on Tacoma. Give me a paper to them, to let them know that I am not to blame for your death. My talk is ended. Except for the demon and his lake of fire, Sluiskin's portent of hardship proved to be a literal, even a modest prophecy. At five o'clock in the evening, after eleven hours of struggle, with precipices and glaciers, exhausted, chilled, and without food, they faced a night of zero gales upon the summit. The discovery of comforting steam jets in a neighboring crater, the reality, perhaps, of Sluiskin's lake of fire, made the night livable, though one of suffering. It was afternoon of the following day, before they reached camp, and found an astonished Sluiskin, then, in fact, on the point of leaving, to report their unfortunate destruction. Stevens and Van Trump were doubly pioneers, for their way up the mountain is, in general direction at least, the popular way today, greatly bettered since, however, by the shortcuts and easier detours which have followed upon experience. End of Part 12